Let's be seated. So four years ago, a gunman burst into a grocery store in the south of France, and he shot several people dead in the store and took a woman hostage. And Officer Arnaud Beltram was one of the first to arrive on the scene, and he persuaded the gunman to release the woman. But instead of offering money for her release, instead, he exchanged himself. And as the woman walked free, he placed his cell phone on a table in the store. And what his colleagues heard was the gunman open fire and take Beltram's life right there in the store. The interior minister of France at the time said, France will never forget his heroism, his bravery, and his sacrifice. And they genuinely might not, because we tell stories like this all of the time, and we tell stories like this, uh, many of which are hundreds, if not thousands of years old. There's something about these stories that resonate with us, and we tend to come back to over and over again, stories of sacrifice. Our movies in Hollywood are absolutely full of this motif. Obi-Wan Kenobi, Gandalf, The Terminator, Mr. Spock, Dumbledore, Groot. And these are wizards and robots and aliens and trees. And yet every single time we watch these people on our screens, we're drawn into the story and, and we find ourselves uh, sometimes even crying as we watch a cartoon tree give his life or an alien. And yet we keep on retelling the story and we keep on buying it and going back for more. Uh, we have an overwhelming response to this account. We get it. We understand cost. Jesus says in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So that's the aspect of the cross that we're zooming in on today. That's the thing that we're taking this very narrow focus on today. We're looking at the price that Jesus was willing to pay for you, the, the ransom price of your salvation. So let's look at First Peter, just a couple of verses so we can really slow it down and just look at a few individual words today. First Peter, uh, chapter 1, verse 18. And a reminder, first of all, it is finished. And accordingly, because it is finished, you now are free. You were ransomed, past tense. It's a done deal. From what? What was it that held you captive? What had you hostage? And you've now been ransomed from? Well, the very short, very obvious answer, this is church, is sin. Obviously. But with just two verses today, what we can do is we can zoom in and we can we can take a more subtle and detailed view than that, I think. Look very closely. It says, you were ransomed from dot, 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 ways. So not sin generally, but ways meaning patterns of sin. You were ransomed from recidivative sin or, or something endemic in your life that characterized you. Uh, you were like a record with a scratch, and there was this thing on a loop. I've done a sin. I've done it again. I've done it again. And you were in a loop of sin, says Peter, on repeat. 
And you're a congregation that's used to being preached to, so you're probably doing the thing that I want you to be doing right now, which is joining the dots in your own head and thinking, what are the patterns of sin in my life? Where have I been on repeat? How does this describe me? There could be uh, an addiction, substance abuse, or something like that, but it's far, far more likely to be an addiction to something unseen, a groove that not that many folks know about. could be uh, an emotion, for instance, that uh, you come back to over and over again, or an idea, perhaps, that's on a repeat in your head that no one else has heard. Uh, You might be angry all the time. You might be uh, frequently afraid of things. You might be known as a grumbler and a judge. You might have come up with a euphemism to tell everybody why that's okay. I just speak my mind. Speak as I find. Uh, You might be hard on yourself. You might feel like you're always letting people down. Around and around it it goes. There could be, instead of, if you like, a, a sort of loop that you're in right now, there could be one single solitary event back in the past. But a lie about that event has it in the present in your mind. You know, if only I'd not done that thing back then, then I would be okay. Or or it could be in the future. If only I could achieve this thing, then I will be okay. We find ourselves in loops like that. Breaking out of that loop is something that is achieved by the blood of the cross of Christ. And you are going to hear me talk about that kind of thing all the time. That is basically my sermon. But uh, this is a very, very tight zoom in on the cross today. And I want to suggest to you that even that idea of the loop of sin is too broad of a concept for the much, much more delicate and subtle point that Peter is trying to make today. We're not talking about sin generally, or even great patterns and loops of sin that we find ourselves trapped in as individuals, but actually something else. It can't be just general patterns of sin that Peter is talking about that we were ransomed from. Because he adds to this word ways, meaning patterns of sin, the word futile. You see that word futile there? And he adds to the word futile the word the. So he's being very specific, the futile ways. He's not talking about things that we did that were wrong and we knew were wrong but we did anyway and then felt bad about and then did again on repeat, actually. What he's talking about today is things that we did that were wrong that we thought were right. Things that we did that were wrong that we convinced ourselves would make us okay, make us safe, get us across the line, give us a good life, but were, in fact, futile, useless, completely ineffective at setting us free. That's what he's talking about. Now, before we ask what these things might be, what are these useless ways of our own, uh, let us look a little bit at where these ideas come from. Because no one would just do a stupid thing over and over and over again on purpose that was futile, uh, unless, of course, uh, they play for Manchester United Football Club. Just enjoy it while it lasts, church. They're terrible right now. Uh, The chances are, 
that if, if you're doing something futile that is useless, you don't know you're doing it. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing it. So before we even ask what these things are, we need to ask a much more fundamental question, which is where do we get these ideas from in the first place? Where do they come from? Who told us to think like this? Peter says these futile ways, these things that we do that are wrong, that we think are right, have been inherited from your forefathers. So he's telling us here there is a family dynamic at play. There's some sort of uh, generational sin that's going on here, some worldview that has been given to us, and we were so steeped in this worldview in our families growing up that we probably had no idea we were even doing anything strange in the first place. There's something about the way we were raised that will have a fundamental impact on the way that we think about everything, and in particular, Jesus. And if that way that you were raised was anything other than the exclusive lordship of Christ, then it's likely those ways that you've learned are holding you captive still. So let me ask you this. What are the patterns in your family life? What are the things that characterized uh, the way you were raised and uh, things you were taught and things that are very, very likely now things that you're teaching someone else? Uh, to answer this question, what we can't do this morning is just look at what we were told, what mum and dad said. Because mum and dad said a lot of things. Mum and dad said so many things that there's no way you could have taken them all on board. Uh, to answer Peter's question properly, what we need to do is look at what our families did. Not what they said, but what they did. Your parents might have told you that Jesus is Lord with words. But what did they show you with their actions? Where was the energy and the focus spent in your household growing up? That's the question today. What sort of things made the cut and what didn't? What sort of things got cut in order to make way for the things that were most important in your family system? What did they show you, your parents and your grandparents, with the patterns of their life and their ways? What did they show you with these ways that life was really all about? What did they show you was the kind of key to the good life, the keys to freedom? What did they tell you would make you safe if you got it right? And then in doing that, what did they show you about God? Did they show you that you just need to be generally good, like a nice person. Do a bit of church here and there. Don't get too serious. You can always get round to that later. But right now, right here, there are bigger things to be more concerned about. If they're not more important, they are at least more urgent, perhaps, like health and education and a job and a sport, an instrument and a skill, a family, a reputation uh, and a house. And if you get these things right, then you're going to be safe. These are the fundamental things. And then you can get to God later. Is that what you were shown? If that's how you were taught to think, and you're now teaching someone else to think like that, I have some very distressing news for you. You were trapped in a grocery store with a gun to your head. 
and you're trying to make a bed for the night in aisle 13. Comforting yourself with the fact that you have plenty of food. You're a hostage. You need to be rescued. Maybe there's a different sort of futility to your family's ways. Maybe it's not so much trusting in the world and the things of the world. It is possible that you were raised in your family to think the complete opposite way of that. So instead of being raised to think, and you were shown this by the energy and the focus of your family, that you get all of these things right and then you'll be safe, it is possible, actually, that you were immersed in the complete opposite way of thinking. Maybe you were shown that God, instead of generally benign and kind of all right with stuff, is actually horrible. Maybe you were shown that God is, is, is terrifying and demanding and mean, and that in order to keep God on side... It's down to you to get everything right, to pay him off, to appease him. Maybe you were taught that there were very special prayers that you had to say, very special places you had to go at very special times, where very special behavior was demanded of you. And if you got the special prayers at the special time in the special place right, and you said them in just the special way, then you'd be safe. Maybe you were taught legalism, more law, more works, more sacrifice, and then you'll be safe. In, uh, in your family system, the way that you were raised and maybe now raising your children, is God in your family system the gunman? Is that what you were taught? Peter says to us, both of these ways whether it's just obsessively trusting in the things of the world or obsessively trying to buy God's favor with your works, both of these ways, ironically, though they are utterly opposite of one another, are equally futile. Both investing in this world and ignoring God completely and, uh, or, or trying to buy him off with the things of this world that are his anyway are equally futile. You were ransomed, past tense, a thing has happened, it is finished, he says, w not with silver or gold. I'm in a supermarket, a grocery store. There's a gunman with a gun to my head. I'm wondering how I can escape. And I say to him, why don't we go to the register together and there's some cash in there and I'll give it to you. <laughs> Is he going to let you go? I'll throw in an apple for good measure. No, he's in charge of the whole store. It ain't going to work. Even the most priceless things that we could offer are not sufficient. Even gold and silver will perish. You needed to be ransomed by something from outside. Something from outside of the system had to come in in order to ransom you. And that thing, because we're talking about God, had to be of incalculable price beyond value. And so Peter says, you were ransomed, past tense, it is finished, with the precious blood of Christ. Now we've got a, a little bit of time to do a tight zoom today, so here's a question. Why say blood and not life? Right? Why say blood and, and not body, <laughs> you know, or, or whatever? Because uh, he laid down his life on the cross, so why are we talking about this specific fluid that runs through his veins as opposed to any other aspect of who Jesus is? 
I can just share ideas. I'm not sure. But uh, I think one, the word blood, just gives a nod to the physical horror of the cross. At least in my mind it does. This is a series on the cross, and we have all sorts of very clever doctrinal words that we can share about the cross. We're going to talk about justification and substitution and penal substitutionary atonement, and we're going to talk about expiation and propitiation. We're going to throw all these words out there, all of this doctrine. Let's not lose sight of the fact, with all of these heady theological words, that someone we love was brutalized on an instrument of torture and bled. I am horribly squeamish about blood. I don't like it. I, I, it just it creeps me out. Um, and, and, and when someone tries to take my blood, my veins roll. Like, like I'm not controlling this in my head. My, my vein knows it doesn't want to be stabbed, and so it leaves, and, which makes getting stabbed even worse. Uh, it freaks me out. I went to Quest Diagnostics recently to get some blood work done, and the nurse came in, and at least they, they told me it was a nurse. He was dressed exactly like the man from Mr. Tyre, <laughs> and he had a very similar degree of finesse, and he just butchered me all over the arms as my veins went, ah! and I tried to get out of there, and uh, until grossed out, I passed out on the floor. And I, I feel myself going woozy right now on camera, uh, just talking about it. It's gross. To add insult to, to injury, um, they, was, to revive me, they force-fed me a snack that I'd never seen before. And to my horror, what I discovered was that it was filled with peanut butter, which I absolutely hate. Oh, um, here's something I've learned. In, in, in England, uh, orange wrapper means good things are inside. That means toffee. In America, orange wrapper is a warning sign. It means contains peanut butter, avoid. And uh, I didn't know that. Learned the hard way on the floor uh, as, uh, as uh, Mr. Tyre force-fed me something I hated. <laughs> now, what we don't really know is how Jesus felt about blood. We don't know if he had roly veins or anything like that. But we do know that he was human. We do know that he felt pain. We do know from Scripture that he apprehended the harm of the cross in advance and sweated blood because he was so distressed. His body was, was freaking out and breaking down at the scale of the cost that he alone understood he was about to pay. And so this means it was not easy for Jesus to ransom his life for you. Just because he's God didn't make that easy. The word blood amplifies the visceral nature of the cross. Blood, of course, also takes us deep into many Old Testament motifs. So sacrificial blood shed by a priest would show the people in physical form that which was achieved in the unseen realm. In, in a way, a bit like we have a sacrament of Holy Communion to show us with bread and wine something physical of what's go going on in the unseen realm. Uh, they have this sacrificial system of blood and the pouring of the blood assured them that God was at work. Uh, the book of Hebrews, which joins all the dots between the Old and the New Testament so brilliantly, uh, says the blood of the cross also has a cleansing effect on our consciences. The, the blood proves to us that he loves us. Blood 
was a purifying substance. It was flicked upon the priests to consecrate them and make them clean. As, as priests, as members of a royal priesthood, believers are flicked with the blood of Christ, consecrating, setting apart those of us who believe and marking us with blood to purify us and, and make us ready. Blood gives us a boldness and an access to the throne of grace with confidence. We do not need to be afraid of, of the thunderclouds of the throne room any longer because we're marked with the blood, just as the people of God were in the temple before. We are wherever we go. And when Peter says blood, he's talking about all of these things. Uh, when he says uh, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, I think he's just turning up the contrast now, just amplifying the importance of the blood. A lamb without blemish or spot uh, reminds us that under the Old Testament rules, what was required in sacrifice was not just an animal, but a spotless lamb, a precious lamb, something uh, pure. The temptation sometimes for the people of God in the Old Testament was to bring uh, a lamb that was lame. You know, you have a flock, and one of them is a bit dodgy, something wrong with it. Bring that one. Do the sacrifice on the cheap. Give God the, the kind of scrap. And uh, that will have been, for some of us, our family way. That will have been how we were taught to think about God. Let's do this on the cheap. Let's just give a little bit. Let's just give something that we don't really need anyway. Let's do the God thing on the cheap, kids. That's what Christianity is all about. This bringing of a lame offering is kind of like the Old Testament version of donating a sofa to the church instead of a, a tithe. I've got news for you. If it's too gross for your house, it's too gross for God's. Take it to the dump and give him something good. In slavery, in Egypt, hostage, captive, behind enemy lines, under oppression, with a gun to their heads, the people of God, on the night of the Passover, sacrificed the blood of an unblemished lamb. And they marked the door frames of their homes with the blood of the Lamb. And as the angel of death came through Egypt, striking down the firstborn, the angel passed over any home marked with the blood of the Lamb. And as they were ransomed from Egypt, they were transported from a world of death into a world of life. And they could dump all the gold they wanted at Pharaoh's gates. Or they could build a temple and dump all the gold at those gates. They could build their own gates and they could put machine gun nests either side of it and dig a moat if they wanted to in Egypt. But all of those tactics would have been futile for them because they were trapped. They were behind enemy lines, and what they needed was a ransom. Jesus is the Lamb. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is spotless. Jesus is pure. Jesus is uniquely precious. His blood is 
without value, beyond it. Uh, precious, the word precious there, we can zoom in on that word. It, it means, of course, great value. It means high esteem, something like that. But the, you go through the little Strong's Dictionary of Meanings and you get to a much uh, sort of lower down meaning. It also means precious, well-beloved. It's the secondary meaning of the word. God loved his son like we love ours. But he so loved the world that he gave his son as a ransom for you. All other ways, good ways, bad ways, they're all futile because the only way is Jesus Christ. One more thing, and we'll finish with this idea. It is true, Jesus says, John 15, and we, this is a you know, famous verse, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. But in Romans chapter 5, Paul goes even further still, and he says, perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I just wonder if one of the reasons why we keep on telling this story in our movies and uh, in our histories about the ransom price is because the story isn't quite good enough. There's something in our hearts that yearns for more than Gandalf and Groot. Hollywood isn't quite getting the story right. Jesus did not ransom his life for his friends or a nice old lady. He ransomed his life for his enemies to make them into his friends. And then he rose. Next, he will come again. And he will vindicate anyone who is marked with the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the blood. And as we'll sing in a few moments' time, there's nothing but the blood. I thank you, Lord Jesus, uh, that there's this price that we really can't understand. We are aware, for many of us, that talk of childhood is painful. And for some of us, uh, it, it's filled with joy. Uh, but, Lord Jesus, there is just one thing we need, and that is you. So I pray that, Lord, as now uh, perhaps we, we're in charge of a family, that you would, by your grace, have us so marked by the blood of the Lamb that what our family is all about is Jesus. In your name, amen.